welcome to episode one of the Lines on Music podcast, a podcast about the academic study and performance of music. My name is Jeremiah Spillan. I'm a PhD researcher in jazz studies and an associate lecturer in jazz and popular music studies based in London. While the primary focus of this podcast will be on the academic study of jazz and popular music, the intention is to really keep things quite open, and there are some exciting episodes planned for the months ahead. So, with that said, I really hope you will enjoy this episode, and that you will join me in the rest of this podcast journey, exploring a wide range of music and ideas. This episode, episode one, which is entitled Menace and Influence, is the first of two parts. The conversations here and in the following episode feature a number of participants at a recent jazz studies conference in Dublin, which was entitled Documenting Jazz. Documenting Jazz took place between the 17th and the 19th of January 2019 at the Conservatory of Music and Drama at TU Dublin. As noted by the conference chair, Dr. Damien Evans, in the programme notes, this was the first academic jazz studies conference in Ireland and took place 100 years after the music named Jazz was first played there. So this is both very timely and very exciting. There were three conference rooms running simultaneously, with approximately 70 conference papers given over the three days. There were a wide range of panels with themes covering topics from Irish jazz heritage, to jazz and gender, to jazz and critical discourse, to jazz and the digital. So a really diverse collection of research under the heading of documenting jazz. This episode will feature two conversations. The first with Professor Gabriel Solis, who gave one of the conference's two keynotes. The other keynote was given by Professor Kryn Gabbard, who we will speak to in episode two. Following the conversation here with Gabriel, we will speak to Mark Hannaford about his paper on the topic of influence and its role in jazz documentation. So let's introduce our first guest and set up the conversation. Gabriel Solis is a professor of musicology, chair of musicology, and affiliate in African American studies and anthropology at the University of Illinois. He is the author of Monk's Music, Thelonious Monk and Jazz History in the Making, published by the University of California Press in 2008, and the Thelonious Monk Quartet with John Coltrane at Carnegie Hall, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. He has published articles widely, ranging on topics from jazz to popular music to ethnomusicology, and he is currently working on a book tentatively titled Music in the Black Pacific, Indigenous Artists in the African Diaspora. He is also working with an international consortium of digital jazz studies scholars on a project titled Dig That Lick, analysing large-scale data for melodic patterns in jazz performance. Gabriel's keynote at the conference began with a callback to Jed Rasler's oft-cited article, The Media of Memory, The Seductive Menace of Records in Jazz History. You can find Rasler's article in Crane Gabbard's edited collection, Jazz Among the Discourses, from 1995. 
In his keynote, Solis highlighted the persistence of recordings as historically difficult objects, before dealing with the material changes of access to sound and video recordings by the advent of streaming today. Our engagement with these, Solis argued, requires both new theory and new methodologies. Our conversation picked up on some of these topics. We began with some reflections on Razla's article before discussing some issues around the internet as a site of jazz research. Okay, so let's get into it. In your keynote, you spoke about Razla's seminal article. Um, you know, you kind of talked about the seductive menace being a, actually a quite seductive title in a yeah. way, and that kind of maybe is part of its success. Um, and then you, you kind of said, is that a kind of enduring case of its effect? Is it kind of you know a case of first to the well, or is it a case of incisive writing? So maybe um, maybe you could kind of give your thoughts about um, Razzle's article. Yeah, sure, happy to. And I, I mean, I so I, I feel like I've read this article now at three different stages of my career because I it came out just as I was starting graduate school. So my my whole career is in some way kind of tied to not just that article, but the larger you know the the two volumes that Kryn uh, Kryn Gabbard uh, edited and. Um, so I read it first in this like first flush of graduate school and had this sense of, I think, being like a little bit overwhelmed by it. There's a lot in it. Uh, and the title is a title that you can't forget, but actually doesn't relate all that much to the thing he's doing in, in, in it when you get down to it, which is why I think maybe partly I think it's a little bit of a seductive title or yeah, a little, yeah. you know, yeah. clickbait kind of title. It's kind of like the the seductiveness of canonical writings as well as canonical recordings, yeah, actually. Yeah. You're lured back to them or, you know, you kind of keep citing them. Yeah, there's some reason why this thing keeps coming, you know, back. And then I, and then I dealt with it again uh, in the process of getting my first book done, which uh, is about, oh, not my first book, uh, the, my first article, which is an article that I, was a kind of side project that I didn't put in the book that deals with, um, recordings with Monk's uh, 1958 live recordings and the, the nature of what did it mean that he didn't want the original uh, takes released and that he arranged for a second session a, about a month later and the, he liked those and the band was much more prepared. I mean, it actually works better. And then after his death, they were all released posthumously. And what do we kind of make of that? What is that what are the ethical considerations? What does it mean in terms of what we think recordings are? What does it mean in terms of our desires as people who want something from this music? You know, uh, as I dealt with it then too, and I had a really negative position on it at that point. Like actually, I, I, I read and I had also been, you know, really struggling with Derrida and trying to figure out what did I think about his identity, specifically grammatology and the idea of the writing and the, the question of presence. And, you know, are recordings like written texts? They aren't, or they are. And so I dealt with it then too, but in a very kind of my own, I don't know, anxiety of influence sort of way, I really pushed against it. And so it was nice to come back to it now um, and say, try to have a somewhat more balanced or, or nuanced sort of reading of it. And I think I'm, um, I've read more since then too, so it was a little, Easier, but one of the things that really struck me in the interim is just how much he's doing in the article and, and how much it's the question of the seductive menace of the recording and, and trying to understand the recording, which is absolutely how other people have written about it. I'm, I'm, I too 
that we all who read, have read it and responded to it basically are responding to this aspect of the thing, I think. But actually, part of why I think the title also is really clickbaity is that the, the real thing he's trying to do there is to have some kind of say about historiography. Um, and, and I think there's a more interesting, ultimately a more incisive argument there about the problem that you know, we now might whatever, call uh, um, the, the organic kind of, the organism problem. Um, and, and so it was, it was helpful to me to be able to sort of assess that and think like that actually, I think we've, we have gone somewhere with this thing. It's another thing that strikes me as funny is that this is a guy's a compliment professor who writes about, you know, European modernism, English modernism, and never really came back to jazz. It was just a one-off. And I, I kind of wish he'd written more about it, because actually I'd like to see how he would have extended those arguments, especially in dialogue with the ways that we've changed as a field. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so I guess, like you were saying, it's kind of, in some ways, it's more about uh, looking at texts from the historical perspective and kind of just having that awareness that you're kind of dealing with um, an object that has certain truths and certain untruths in a way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, and this is something I, I, I was trying to kind of emphasize in the, in the talk and that I think is, um, is embedded in some of the ways other people have written around this issue, which is that um, being aware that we're not talking about things that exist in themselves, right? But that actually their, um, their status as objects is always something that is in, in a really complex relationship with the work that we're doing to them and the work that they're doing to us and the work that the, their ecosystem, the things around them are doing. The ephemera around them, the packaging, all that kind of, eco, the, yeah, the economy yeah, around it. The it? economy around it, the, the changing nature of the world that it exists in, right? I, you know, I don't think a, a, I really don't think a jazz recording from 1925 sounds to me like it sounded to somebody in 1925, even if I have a pristine copy of it and I'm playing it on the same, you know, similar kind of equipment. I just, I, I actually think I, there's some sense of real distance and real historical difference. Um, and that, 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 so that these things are always in some kind of shifting world. And uh, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was a pleasure actually to me to be able to kind of return to that article and think, yeah, I have problems with this article. There are things in this article I want to push back against, but also there are things in it that were really forward thinking or were really like, yeah, we, we as a collective group of people thinking about this thing, we actually did go forward mm. from that place. Yeah. And there's another thing as well, which is interesting to me is that that article sits in a a certain time frame of its of its own right, you know, that, that starting point of the new jazz studies. And so for me, it also becomes a little bit dated in terms of where we are now in the digital age. Um, but maybe we can come to that in a second. But yeah, I, wanted, sure. I wanted to ask you about something um, that you were talking about in the keynote. Um, 
which was uh, like theorizing around the idea of recording and jazz. And you talked about three different parts. You talked about recording as a medium, recording as a technology, and recording as a musical object. I don't know, maybe you could, we kind of been talking about this, but maybe you can elaborate a bit more on your kind of theorizing. Of yeah, this yeah, of course. Um, and this is, this is another way in which I think, you know, in that original article, the recording still it, it, it is not, he's sort of treating it in a number of different ways, actually, but really does still think, think mostly think of it as a kind of pure object and one of the things that I think the intervening 20 some odd years has done is we've become much more savvy as humanists in thinking about those kinds of objects there's a lot of material that we've you know that has been generated and ways of thinking about it so those three seem pretty compelling and I think the third of them the the kind of musical object um, is the one that is, that was already there in many ways. And that's mostly also, I think, where that article of mine that, that does respond to Rizula back in the day um, kind of starts out from it. And it really is a question about what do these things tell us about aesthetic ontology, about the nature of the work and the text and ideas about authorship or ownership and how those might not always line up and how they might be different for African-American music, for jazz, um, and for differentially placed communities, for black people, for white people, whatever, in, uh, in America and in the world. Um, so I think that remains a, a crucial way to think about recordings, is they, they do actually, they, they both document music and are music. Right? So they, 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 uh, there was music that was played, there was an event that happened and it made a thing, and also people play that thing and it, it exists independent of, you know, in, in the way that a photograph is also, you know, both a representation and a, you know, reflection or whatever thing. I don't yeah, know. It's, it's a, a document and it yeah, imbues yeah, yeah, different yeah. meanings to different yeah, yeah, people. Right, 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 yeah, right. Yeah. And th this is not a pipe is also not a pipe is also a pipe. Uh, all right. So that thing. And then, uh, you know, the technology piece of this is just thinking about um, the ways that the, the technologies uh, through which we consume these really do play a role in how in their histories so that you know the the CD has different affordances than the LP had is had different affordances than the 78 than the wire recording then sheet music and the piano roll I mean I think jazz people tend broadly to ignore those those ones and they're probably relevant and I am guilty of this too so okay uh, and and then the mp3 or the you know whatever streaming format like that all of these have different affordances and those affordances really shape the way that things happen um, and that we, we engage them and and not just the file types, but all the technologies around this. I mean, there's, a, there's this whole world of the technological that I think we need a better handle on. We always need a better handle on um, for thinking about how things got made and all that. And then the, the, as media, I think of them as objects you know, that are also circulating in an industry that has an economy and that has a politics and um, the, you know, the, the kind of Marshall McLuhan medium is the message thing. Like, I do think still really very much matters um, in making sense of recordings at any of these historical kind of junctures, you know, including, including now. And then and that, and that kind of leads on to what, you know, 
this is kind of embedded in what you're saying here, that these recordings, and they can become canonical, or they, they might not be canonical, actually, um, but they become part of an ecosystem, and they allow other audiences to transcend a regional scene. And I think that's really interesting from the European perspective. So, you know, jazz as being an American or an African-American experience, like primarily, you know, at least certainly in the very beginning, but how those records were disseminated, you know, across the globe and they, they were received um, in Europe. I mean, I don't think you really went into the idea of transcending regional scenes too much, but I don't know if, if you have any thoughts about that or is there... For sure, and this is something that I think I've really grown in my understanding of it since I've been doing research in Australia with indigenous musicians and understanding the sort of ways that black music has kind of grown there. Um, and only then do I really like wake up to, oh, right, these things were, these, they're not only global, but they were global almost immediately, right? Like by 1920 or something, jazz was global. And it was, so it was really always already, in a sense, just flowing in these really interesting ways. Obviously, I think made possible by recordings, but not only because of recordings, like also absolutely because people were moving around for a bunch of reasons, some of them not great, you know, the wars and so forth, but, but that, that, that that has always been part of what's, yeah, what happens with this music. And yet, on the other hand, in some important ways, the music doesn't fully transcend its localities, right? And so that, that routinely there is a sense um, that people want to argue about, is there a European jazz, or is there an Australian jazz, and, and is there an American jazz? And I think that's part of the idea that the, the object, the recording or the whatever, that, all, that travels very easily, but somehow it's more complicated than that, and it still is very much a thing that we make. Um, and that the politics of it are as much, the so sociology of it is as much at stake as the technology of it. Mm -hmm. um, it guess. kind of links to what uh, I think Mark was saying earlier on uh, about like influence. Yeah. And it's also linked to like, you know, ideas of hybridity, which are there from the very beginning in jazz. Um, and then as, as recordings get spread out regionally and they're received in different places, people maybe like misread them and they, they they understand the elements that they can understand, and then they they do with that what they do with their own thing. So it's kind of it's an interesting kind of how how it becomes disseminated, received, read, misread, and reproduced in different ways, which ultimately becomes a kind of global phenomenon in different little pockets regionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is I mean this is central to the globalization kind of literature is the idea of globalization or whatever, right? And the 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 that it's a very complex network. Uh, for sure, yeah. Um, there was one or two other things that you mentioned which I thought were interesting were, uh, you know, Mark Katz, that comes up, you know, the idea of the phonographic effect. Mm -hmm. um, I think what, something that he says is, um, you know, the phonographic effect as being something to expand the discussion on why and how recording influences music. Um, and that reminded me of something else that you didn't mention, which is the Jesse Eisenberg book, you know, the, um, oh, yeah. the Recording Angel. That's another interesting thing, the idea of uh, recordings as a means of, t means of time travel. I guess it's a more philosophical kind of approach, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing as well. Um, I don't know if you have, any, have you, any thoughts about the Eisenberg idea or have you, have you... Yeah, I mean, I think, so this is where I was trying to head in the end of the, of the talk, actually, which is that I think... Um, recordings do sort of force us to think about temporality, I think, in different ways than 
other things force us to in different ways than visual art in different ways than the written text. And I, I may be overstating that. It's possible that actually any kind of enregistering or any kind of, of t making tangible of a thing does this to some extent. There's something about hearing the path, hearing the sound of a thing that was absolutely made at some other time that is profound. And it was terrifying, obviously, right? We, we know this. It was really unnerving and unsettling to people early in the recorded era uh, that that thing of hearing a, a disembodied voice was upsetting. Um, and we've gotten used to it. It's not upsetting anymore, but I think there is something still uncanny about it in a way um, that uh, makes us think about time. And, and, and from my perspective, I think one of the things it can help us do is think about time in ways that are not, think about history as something other than through a biological metaphor, right? So that not thinking of history as meaning that, okay, a thing is born and grows, matures and eventually dies. Um, and they, whether that's a, a person uh, or that's a uh, you know, a, 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 a species that is, you know, evolving or, you know, these kinds of metaphors have been, they are dead ends in some kind of way. And this gets back to, that's, I think, what Razula actually is trying to argue against in that, in that article. He's like, let's, don't do that. Let's do something else. But he doesn't offer what the something else is. Mm. And, I, you know, I'm not sure. But so the thing I was suggesting is, I think, you know, an, an eco ecological model where that, that is more like about accumulation and thinking about the ways that um, you know, trees and mushrooms uh, live. I mean, I'm reading about mushrooms, you know, right? And they, they talk to each other and they, they live over these long, very long time spans in these, these strange kinds of ways underground that, they dis, that they are distributed organisms in important and interesting ways. And, and maybe that's like a, a metaphor that might be useful, you know, and that sediment and water and you know, maybe there's a way to get beyond, I don't know, to get post-human. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, some people, I think, talk about this like a media ecology, and they use the analogies of, uh, yeah, of the, the kind of biological word to kind of represent these kind of media cultures. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. kind of another interesting kind of perspective of it. Um, but I think that kind of like, some of that brings us up to, I mean, so where Razlu was at that time, but then it also brings us up to where we are now, and I think it came up at a couple of different talks in the, in the conference. Um, which is that we're now in this digital age, and we have you know this um, this kind of anarchic archive, which is which is YouTube. Um, you talked about uh, documentation from the past, and you said there's like other really rich data sources in there. So you gave an example where you're talking about audiences and, t and TV uh, recordings from the past, and and how can, how they can kind of give us. Uh, social kind of audience data about the music that we're studying as well. I think that's kind of an interesting thing too. Maybe you could kind of talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, there are other people at the conference and you're one of them who are clearly doing more uh, rich, fully kind of fleshed out research in the online media sphere. So I think, I, you know, in some ways I'm, I, I, I really appreciate that work. I think it's Totally, it's great, and, and in some ways uh, probably captures this thing more fully. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I'm, 
I'm a little bit of a dabbler there and trying to sort of point to like, well, there's a thing here that I think we as a group might be in, need to deal with. Yeah, it. I think for me too, I'm still kind of there, there. There's a thing here. We need to get into it. We need to kind of explode it a little bit. And yeah, 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 yeah. And it's and part of it is that it is so problematic. Um, the, 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 the world of the web, right? It's so difficult and actually like n opaque to, from a historical standpoint or an ethnographic standpoint to really work with. Um, on the other hand, I do think there's just, there's an incredible amount that's there. And so some of it for me is thinking about like in the same spirit as the spirit of going back to older ethnographic recordings and trying to think about, you know, those were made perhaps not for the purposes that I might have for them. Um, but what can I find in them that, that speaks? Um, and one of the ways, you know, a lot of photography, recordings, et cetera, often it's not the thing that is in focus uh, that turns out to be the most interesting thing, but rather it's the thing in the background or it's the, the noise outside or you know, it's that thing that turns out to really speak about some world that, um, has been forgotten or has been ignored or in some other way, right? Is, is a, for me, straightforwardly documenting the black audience in America for jazz after 1965 is a, is a, um, a thing I'm committed to uh, because I think that too often the orthodoxy is to say uh, jazz lost its black audience uh, more or less with avant-gardeism. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think it fits the facts on the ground. Um, and uh, I think it's also, um, I think it's nefarious for a couple of different reasons, political reasons, about both representing the music and representing the community. And so, I, you know, here is a place where it's not hard to find videos of black people watching jazz. Now, that takes a lot more work historically, as a historian, to actually legitimately wrestle with what does that mean? There's a lot of reasons you could see an image of that sort, but I am interested in the ways that the web sort of throws up documentation that it doesn't intend to uh, necessarily, but that might be really useful uh, to scholars with, with whatever their interest, and that's my particular interest, but I think there's a lot of these kinds of interests that may be served by a serious engagement with this thing. That said, a serious engagement with it is going to require some tools. Mm. Um, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, methodologies to kind of deal with it um, and dealing with the problematic nature of the uncurated anarchic nature of the web. So if you were to go look at these resources in an archive, you know, an archivist or a researcher has cataloged it, has, you know, explored um, the information around it, and then you can assume that the metadata around it is relatively accurate. But then the examples you gave today, there were multiple years presented, um, and so there's like, there are other problems. So there's, the data is there, but there's, um, there's problems with how it's presented and the additional information that's presented. Yeah, right? yeah, and there's no metadata standard. Yeah. Right? So I have a colleague in history who is doing work on a platform for producing um, um, sort of historically useful web media or curating media from the web into historically useful kind of formats, which I appreciate. I'm not sure, I think that's gonna, this is a very big job. Somebody, you know, I, who knows, maybe the NEH wants to give me a grant and hire some grad students to work on that. But, 
But I think there's a value, there's something valuable there. And I mean, that's, that's for stuff, that's for old stuff. The other thing is that the web, of course, is this space, as you're, you know from your work, where all of this purpose-built material is being produced and, and curated. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not totally anarchic and totally yeah. uncurated, but its curation is not in the hands of the people that it often uh, is in the hands of. And there's some really cool thing about that, of course, right? Because we know that part of the problem with history is the ways that power intervenes in its in the curation of archives. We know that, so there is a value there. Uh, on the other hand, it is a real challenge, um, but one that I think also is something that we probably need to be dealing with. I mean, the idea that, I don't think anybody, I've never seen a person in a jazz studies kind of context say, it's problematic that we don't have a discographical database of, let's say, NPR Jazz Night, at, you know, which, which is a thing that's pretty stable and is a lot of material and is readily available. Um, I, whereas if we didn't have a discography of, I don't know, Lee Morgan, um, that's a problem. And I, and I, you know, I'm not saying, this is not a huge critique, it's just a, it is to note that that's a thing. Um, and maybe that's a thing that moving into the future probably will change slash should change. Yeah, uh, but I think the, the internet kind of affords, as we were talking about affordances with technology, it affords these kind of decanonizing impulses. So now um, all these uh, artists who may have been forgotten by the mainstream or not included because they didn't have the prestige now have people who can represent them or document them and put them online like you mentioned, you know, tiny NPR concerts or tiny desk concerts, things like this. Um, and that's kind of something uh, I mentioned yesterday, which is Simon Reynolds' idea of uh, post-broadcasting or narrowcasting. It's kind of um, um, replacing the, the mainstream media, in much like we're doing now, actually. We're, we're, we're uh, post-broadcasting, we're, we're you know, circumventing, uh, you know, radio channels and, and that's what the internet is doing and that's what these individuals who are kind of collecting archives initially they are creating archives initially they might not realize that that's what they're doing but over time they realize what they're doing and it becomes a, um, an a more intentional act. Yeah that's right and, and in fact um, often these are you know these become really really good so resources so you know one hopes that uh, they are also archiving them in ways that are not totally owned by Google I mean this is a this is a separate kind of concern, but one that, and, and it didn't, you know, it's on, right on the edges of the talk I gave, but I am, I do also think there's a whole conversation to be had about the economics and the sort of politics of this thing, uh, where it concerns musicians getting paid for their work, for instance, um, and where it concerns ownership of information and all of this. Uh, that, uh, and the data behind that information, right. you know, the, the, like the data behind those recordings, which that is the currency of this age. It's not the actual, for, for, the, for the, the corporations like Google who own YouTube, it's not the monetary value, it's the data value. So that's a, totally. that's a different thing. That's, totally. a, big, uh, that's a whole different conversation, but it's, uh, right. it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it just, we, one slips very easily into conspiracy theory, <laughs> you know, in this kind of space. But like, yes, there is something about the fact that that the reason YouTube exists, at least at this point, maybe not when it was produced originally. And, and that came up in your panel also to say, like, that the platforms themselves are also 
historical entities. They are not the same now they once were, yada yada. But the reason that thing exists now is that it's a way to capture data about people, not even data about these recordings. It's just, that's data about users. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then you think, oh, is that where we want, is that where we want important sources of academic work to live? Uh, and, or are there ways that some of this can be uh, also archived in, in less more, commercial... Yeah, more robust institutional structures that in theory should be more in theory, it should be more future-proof, but that's, there's no guarantee of that either. Of yeah, there's no, <laughs> of course, there is no guarantee of that. And I'm, I mean, I, 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 I don't intend to imagine or to, be, to appear to imagine that um, I believe in the long future. I actually kind of don't. I, I, I don't know. Some things will survive. Some things won't. I don't, I don't worry too much about historical loss on that level or that scale, but I do think at least for the for the narrow term for the for the the term in which you know we are still working together and we still seem to care about some things and and we're pass we're in some kind of tradition that is passing things to from person to person and generation to generation I would like to see um yeah, that that Google doesn't own all of our work, mm-hmm. <laughs> or not, you know, or Facebook, or I don't know, whatever uh, corporate yeah. entity is. I'd like that not to be the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's one other interesting thing uh, about YouTube that you touched on, and I also touched on yesterday. Um, and for me, um, for me, in my case, it relates to what Kiri Miller. She kind of talks about, um, you know, as digital ethnographers. The, the, the people online who are commenting and responding to the media on there, um, I think she describes them as like flimsily constructed persona and that they're problematic, you know, methodologically for us. Um, and so, but I think it's a really rich place as well for discussion. So I think the more mainstream, the more popular you get, the comment sections become uh, more vitriolic and, you know, kind of unpleasant. Um, in some cases in jazz, in the, in the area that I research, Often people use their own names, um, and it, some parts of it are more reliable, but then there are others that are not, you don't, you don't know, uh, sometimes you don't know the gender, the age of the person, so you don't have a true representation of, of, of you know, what's going on. So it's, it's a complex thing, but it's also a useful data source, and that's something you mentioned as well. I don't know if you have any thoughts about the yeah. comment section. Yeah, and part of this also feels generational, like I do think that uh, so I've, I have kids who are in their late teens and early 20s, and they are, are, are more, more involved in narrower casted kind of worlds than I am online. So I, don't, I don't actually, I'm not really part of um, fan communities or these kinds of things, uh, or, or sort of specialist communities online. I'm just, sort of not, I'm too old, it's not where my life is. But they, they are, and their sense is not that people are these flimsy things online, because they're in, because they have, con, um, they have created worlds there that are pretty robust and pretty thick, 
like you talk about with with the the gypsy jazz kind of online community, mm-hmm. and I think that the, the more niche you get, as you say, like the more likely that is to be the case. That, and it's also people who are investing more of their time and energy in these things. Um, I still find it, even though I'm not involved in those things, I still find the YouTube comment thread and the Facebook comment thread and various other kinds of places um, important sources of some kind of information. But I typically, um, because I, I don't personally do a lot of online ethnography, I'm more looking at them as sources of kind of aggregate knowledge. So I'm, I'm not trying to run down the question, is that a real person, mostly. Uh, right? Or is that person really the person that they represent themselves to be? Is that, in fact, a 42-year-old guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is less interesting to me or less necessary than the question, what are the sum total of kinds of comments that we have here? What are the ways that people have engaged with this thing? Um, I didn't talk about it, but one of the interesting things, I was showing this McCoy Tyner live video, but it was actually posted, it was posted in a bunch of different places. The version of it I was looking at was posted by a guy who runs a drum enthusiast uh, YouTube page. And so actually all of the comments, although I got it from a search for McCoy Tyner, all of the comments were about Alphonse Mousson, the drummer on the gig. And every time somebody commented about how awesome Alphonse is, he wrote back. Uh, so he was clearly, at least for some period of time, engaged in this thing, and it's straightforwardly him. Um, so that is interesting to see. Uh, whereas I think uh, Terry Lynn Carrington, um, you know, is, is in some ways a bigger sort of media personality, and so she's actually a lot less uh, personally engaged, but also, and maybe because of this, uh, she's less personally engaged because of, the, also there is a lot more ugly kind of stuff there, and I think a lot of it comes from people, um, although in the instance I showed, the, I'm, I feel nearly certain that this kind of weird microaggression, anti-misogynist you know, kind of post was from a bot. Uh, it comes up twice immediately, it ats a person who did not leave a comment, um, and it's the same comment twice, and then you click through, and it's a, clearly not a real page. And it, this makes me think, oh, I'm out of my depth, in, right? Like on some level, I, I think that seems important, but I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Why on earth is there a bot that feels compelled to leave misogynist posts on some, you know, well-known jazz drummer's page, but not like a s- superstar? She's not. Britney yeah, Spears. It's not someone with one billion hits, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's like 40,000 hits on that page since like 2014 or something, which is not a hugely popular YouTube. It's like looked at some. What world do we live in? I don't know. That, yeah, that, I think that is the complexity that Kerry Miller is talking about. It's just, yeah. you know, that, yeah, it's just very, very detailed and very complex. And I mean, that, that does require detailed methodologies or kind of yeah. approaches. And I think the way, actually, what you mentioned about aggregating what is said there is a kind of good way to think about it. Not taking it as uh, pure, true data, but representative of something maybe is, uh, is yeah. probably a way of thinking about it without being involved in that specific discipline, maybe, Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah. I mean, or, you know, doing real thick ethnography. Mm. But I think you can do that. She's certainly done that. Sounds like you're doing that. I mean, there are people who do ethnographic work on the web, and I respect that. I I think that's a real place to do ethnography. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's just a different project. For sure, for sure, yeah. Um, that's great. I mean, maybe one, one last question, I guess. Um, so we've had like two or three days of, of a wide range of talks, um, touching on different ways of documenting jazz. I mean, I've seen some great talks from, you know, creating regional uh, jazz fake books um, on local scenes to, uh, you know, um, people sharing uh, bootleg tapes online to, um, you know, more critical, theoretical approaches to documentation of jazz. And it's been really, really broad. Um, but uh, maybe do you have any final thoughts about the conference, some overarching themes that have stood out to you or, you know, um, kind of reflecting on the last two or three days, any, any thoughts? Sure. Well, so one thing is that the plurality of what's going on here is something I really like about the way jazz studies uh, is today, and maybe especially jazz studies within the kind of European jazz network. Uh, um, ironically, there's more jazz conferences here than there are in the U.S. as far as I can tell. So um, uh, that's kind of nice, and it's it's something that I think is is the sign of a maturing field, or even a mature field, which is yeah, there's room for people to do a lot of different kinds of work, and those kinds of work sometimes speak to each other and sometimes don't, and that's kind of okay, and they can, you know, a thousand flowers can bloom or whatever, they can like coexist in a world, and, and that the sum total of that world is, is itself interesting. Um, so yes, I would agree with you there, and it's been nice to see that wide range. So that's one takeaway that I've had. Um, Another one, and this is a little random, but just is how much attention Mary Lou Williams has gotten at this conference. And I love that. Uh, that's been very nice. And it's, I, don't know that, I don't know what to make of that beyond she's kind of, I guess, in the air. Um, but it seems well-deserved and, and I think you know, nice. And, and in fact, I would say um, you know, the extent maybe to which also rather than a, you know, a jazz studies where there's like one person saying, what about women? And that one person, you know, is Sherry Tucker, uh, that, which, whose work I love and who, you know, I'm, I'm glad she has said that over the years, but also I think to have a, a thing where, you know, I mean, I certainly felt like I need to think about if I'm gonna select examples that I'm not just selecting men, and that if I'm gonna quote people, I'm not just quoting men. And I think there's more of that. You know, I don't know that everybody's thinking in that way, but I think that, that there's a broader sense of that here now uh, than there would have been 10 years ago, and I think that's absolutely you know, spot on. That's great. All right. Perfect, thank you very much. Thank you, it's been a real pleasure. conversation is with Mark Hannaford. Mark is an Australian academic and pianist. He is currently a PhD candidate in music theory at Columbia University in New York. His research focuses on composer, improviser, pianist, and co-founder of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, the AACM, Mahal Richard Abrams. In addition, Mark's interests include 20th century music, improvisation in both musical and non-musical domains, 
critical identity studies, and rhythm and meter. He's also deeply interested in the various intersections between music theory and analysis on the one hand and performance on the other. So Mark and I linked up to have a chat at the end of the conference, but unfortunately the conservatory buildings were closing up, so we, we couldn't really find anywhere quiet to speak. As a result, and perhaps somewhat fittingly, we ended up in a pub in Dublin to speak about some of the ideas that Mark discussed in his conference paper. As you'll hear, the pub was relatively busy, but there's a nice ambience about it, and it was great to discuss Mark's ideas with him here, away from the slightly more formal setting of the conference. Mark's paper dealt with the theme of influence and its prevalence in discourse around jazz. Mark highlighted that while influence plays a crucial role in the documentation, canonization, and critical discussions, that influence itself is under-theorized in jazz. Mark's discussions highlighted a number of power relations linked to influence, such as those around gender, race, and sexuality. And it was based on these that he put forward his own theorizations, those of the territorialization and deterritorialization of influence. Okay, with that said, let's hear from Mark and get the lowdown on some of the ideas at play here. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the talk today. Um, I think there were a lot of ideas that were kind of, you know, pressing into my own research as well, like sure. the idea of influence and, you know, Harold Bloom. Uh -huh. um, I mean, maybe in the first general sense, you could talk about some of the ideas of uh, influence in jazz. Um, yeah. You know, as, as, sorry, as they related to your, uh, you know, to your talk today. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, influence is one of those things that once you start looking for it in jazz discourse, it's sort of everywhere, you know, uh, in interviews, you know, in liner notes, in histories, in biographies, all sorts of things. Um, so the, the sort of the motivation for the talk was to try to think about what that word and that concept is really doing when people invoke it, because it's far from clear, at least to me, that it's doing the same thing in all cases. Um, you know, at a basic level, it's, it's you know, the, 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 my, I think the basic kind of idea of it is that it's part of a kind of lineage creation, you know? So, you know, you read Lester Young influenced Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker's famous stories of like, playing Lester Young, but kind of double time or something like that, or, you know, um, or James P. Johnson's influence on Thelonious Monk, or, you know, like kind of every, uh, Thelonious Monk's influence on everybody. You know, there's, there's just this kind of idea of influence. Yeah, and the, a part of people's myth is like, you know, the lineage where they come from, their frames of exactly. reference. Exactly, yeah, so yeah, there's fr frames of reference, I think is a really good way of putting it. You know, it's, it's a way of constructing a narrative um, or an area within which people operate, um, a lineage or an area or something like that. So the, the idea with the paper was to try to explore what some of those things might mean in a, in a sort of a less uh, explicitly uh, music analytical context, you know, and in a more in a sort of critical theory or, or, or um, uh, a, a more critical or conceptual framework was sort of the main goal of the paper. Yeah. yeah. And then so, you know, thinking of some of the the theoretical frameworks that you're, you're using, you went to kind of like literary theory, you know, yeah. um, Bloom's anxiety of influence, you know, which is, is certainly like, you know, a key point for this. Yeah. Um, maybe you could like elaborate on how 
you know, how Bloom's theories apply to your own work here. Yeah, I'd love to. Maybe before I do that, just briefly, I'll talk about Platoff, who's the other guy, you know, because Platoff gives you the kind of positive reading of influence in a way. Um, John Platoff, he, he has this article on Mozart as a, it's, it's an article on Mozart, but it's really about influence. And, and his thing about influence is that there's really three things you have to do. Um, you have to show that there's a, a historical connection between two artists, and you do that by looking at archival documents, letters, or you know, or something like that. Um, you need to show that there's some sort of similar relation of similarity between their work, i.e., the the late the influencee is somehow copying the influencer would be the thing. And then the third thing you need to show is that the um, the influencee has altered their work in some way in response to the influence. You know, so the classic story would be, you know, Charlie Parker, you know, every you know, is part documented that he would listen to Lester Young's record. That's the first thing, you know. There, and then you have this sort of process of finding similarity between Lester Young and Charlie Parker, what they played or what they improvised. That would be the second one. And then there would usually be some sort of claim that his um, work on Char on Lester Young's music led Charlie Parker to he, somehow the innovations that he lent it. So that's the kind of positive reading of influence. And then what I'm calling the sort of negative or cynical reading is the Harold, Harold Bloom's one. So Platoff is dealing with music, uh, Western classical music, and but Bloom is dealing with poetry, basically. And he has this idea, which I think is really interesting, a very provocative kind of uh, take which is the influence is about anxiety and it's a struggle and the struggle is um, the struggle of younger or later I'd like to say later artists their, um, their anxiety is that they don't have anything new to say in light of the past masters it's all been said it's all been done what can I do you know um, and his basic idea is um, that later artists misread purposefully misread the work of earlier artists so that they can define themselves, that the later artists can define themselves as giants in their own right, and therefore the earlier artists sort of become their precursors. So you say, this former artist is really about this, thi this particular thing, which happens to be the thing that you're really interested. Now, it doesn't matter if that earlier artist was really into that thing or not, you describe them in those terms, and then they seem like the prototype for the thing that you're actually doing. So then, uh, you know, it's, it's a much more worked out theory than that. But that's the basic idea. There's a sort of Freudian component and lots of different kinds of things. But th that's the basic idea is that influence is something which is a sort of a, neg a negative or cynical way. It's something to be escaped from. Um, so um, I talked about the example from that uh, Joe Strauss gives. He's a, a theorist and a musicologist in New York at CUNY. And his one of his examples is Schoenberg's essay on Brahms, called Brahms the Progressive. And basically, Schoenberg analyzes Brahms' music in terms that Schoenberg's really interested in in his own music. And so, of course, then, and, and the misreadings are quite glaring. You know, he's putting notes where there aren't notes and changing notes and things like that. But the idea is that... So it's explicit and intentional misreading. Yeah, 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 basically. But, it, it, yeah, it's not, it's, well... Schoenberg doesn't state that he's misreading him. He, he doesn't, it's not explicit in the sense that he's going to, he says, he states that this is my take. He says, and that's just part of the deal. It's like Brahms, you know, we can hear in Brahms's music that he's really about motific saturation, um, you know, and it's pretty good for Brahms, but 
this is the this is the argument I'm paraphrasing you know um, if you're really interested in motivic saturation and that's really the true essence of musical cohesion then you should check my music out because it's like ramping that idea up to the nth degree so Schoenberg escapes the influence of Brahms by casting Brahms as his predecessor yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is hinge, hinging on a misreading of yes, Brahms yes, yes. so that's the basic Blumian slash Joe Strauss idea my take on it is that it's slightly different is that um, in jazz you know in jazz discourse there are often moments where musicians uh, reject influences that are being posited to them by writers you know writers say oh are you influenced by so-and-so and they say no oh, yeah. you know so and the so critics interviewing somebody saying oh, exactly exactly yeah. or musicians of, of their own you know of their own sort of volition saying People think that I'm, motiv I, I'm influenced by so-and-so, but I'm not really or something. So uh, Bloom, for me, is a, a, the way of thinking about those moments as well. So in my paper, I sort of said, you know, the, the moments where musicians claim influences uh, are very important, but the, the moments where musicians uh, reject influences are equally interesting and important because it tells us a lot about in both cases, the question is why would they claim one influence and not claim another influence? That's basically the motivating question. It's like curation of their own creative identity by selectively yeah. identifying. Yeah, and it's difficult because it's a very cynical way to look at it, you know, that they're kind of lying all the time or lying a lot of the time. But yeah, but it's, it's not just that they're lying, it's that they're, I think a lot of the time musicians and, you know, the examples I gave in my paper, I think, both the musicians that I discussed are very savvy. They understand a lot of the kind of racialized, gendered sort of discourse that's going on about the music. And so they're very careful, I think, to highlight the influences that chafe against those like really simplistic readings of their music a lot of the time. So I'm, I'm talking about influence. When I said before, thinking about a sort of critical theoretical way of thinking about influences, this is kind of what I was alluding to, is that influence is a way that musicians can suggest a frame through which one can view their work mm. uh, is, is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, and so some, some of the examples that you mentioned, I mean, maybe you could talk some, about some of those examples. So that's the kind of idea behind what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, but in the, in the kind of more jazz context, yeah. you talked about the AACM, and right. you talked about John Zorn is another example, in, yeah. a, in a kind of a different sense. Yeah, so, so the, the, the two main examples were Anthony Braxton, who was part of the AACM, um, is part of the ACM, I should say, and Mary Lou Williams. But, um, and so uh, Anthony Braxton has this, um, in, in Graham Locke's book, Forces in Motion, there is an incredible number of passages where Braxton is talking about influence. It's, it's incredible how many times that seems to be a thing. Because for, I think for, this, the book was written in, well, I think it was published in 1987, but it was from a series of interviews in 1985. And, you know, Braxton at that time, and for a lot of his career, I think, has been very concerned with making sure people understand where he's coming from. And that includes giving people his influences. So, um, so he sort of, he, his first explicit, one of his explicit discussions about influence is where he's contrasting his claim of influences, influences from European well, not just European, but art music, you know, uh, and he's specifically talking about Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and John Cage, 
um, who are two, he says, are two major influences. And he's contrasting that with people like um, Evan Parker or Derek Bailey and their claiming of African-American influence. And he's saying that in the latter case, white musicians basically are allowed to claim whatever they want. And they, that's seen to be sort of authentic to who they are. But he's saying that when that, that critics and listeners, when they hear him claim the influence of Stockhausen or Cage, a lot of people think of that as somehow disingenuous, that it, that couldn't actually be true on some level, for whatever reason. And, you know, he says, well, it's not for, sorry, not for whatever reason. He says it's, they're racist. It's a racist way of thinking about influence. And so that example's from 1980, you know, the mid to late 80s. And then uh, George Lewis, another member of the AACM, says something similar in 2017 in an interview with Alexander Rothy where he's reflecting on the writing of his book on the AACM. And he basically says, he's contrasting Anthony Braxton and John Zorn. And he's saying um, in, his, in Lewis's uh, study and writing and research on the AACM, you know, those musicians exhibited an incredible mobility in terms of genre and the things that they were listening to, the influences that they had, like an incredibly varied range of things. It's, it's amazing, really, truly amazing. Um, and so John Zorn is similarly, has a similarly voracious appetite for lots of different music. Yet the way people talk about um, AACM musicians, all black composers and improvisers, um, and Zorn, a white improviser and composer, seems to be markedly different. Lewis is saying that when Zorn exhibits that mobility of genre and influences, he's often described as a former jazz musician, like he somehow shed his jazzness. Mm -hmm. But for ACM musicians, he's trans exactly, exactly, he's transcendent. But for ACM musicians, they can never escape. They're, they're never former jazz musicians. They're always jazz musicians yeah, yeah. who have sort of polystylistic interests. Because they're within the tradition of jazz in well, a kind of an, uh, a tenuous way. Yeah, I exactly. I think, I can't remember if it's Braxton or Lewis that says it. I can't remember exactly. But the, the, the cut quote is like, if you're black and you have a saxophone, you're a jazz musician. It doesn't matter what you're into. It just, there's this sort of association based on race a lot of the time um, that goes with it. So that's kind of where that's coming from. So, so, um, then uh, Braxton, the two examples that I gave in the paper, one of acceptance and one of rejection. The, the, the example of rejection is Braxton talking about Paul Desmond. So for many people probably, if, if you didn't know this already, Desmond is a surprising um, selection by Braxton, mainly because their music doesn't sound very similar. They come from different parts of the scene. They're associated with different people in the scene. You know, they're pretty different. Um, so Braxton is sort of in one way stating like you can't pin my influences down on the basis of like genre similarity, sonic similarity or race, Desmond being white, right? And then he go, Braxton goes on to read, he goes on to characterize Desmond's work in terms that, um, that express Braxton's own priorities in music, which is like structural coherence and logic in hearing in their work. So just like Schoenberg read Brahms in this kind of way, Braxton reads Desmond in this kind of way. Um, so that's the first example. The, the, the example of rejection is where he's talking about Eric Dolphy, which to me, you know, when you listen to them, they sound somewhat similar. They're both interested in like post-tonal improvisation, polyrhythm, incredible instrumental virtuosity, multi-instrumentality, you know, extended composition, lots of different things. Yet Braxton says, you know, no, I'm not influenced by 
by Eric Dolphy. I've listened to him, but I'm not as influenced as people think. And so to me, that's a really interesting thing where in a similar kind of way, he's saying like, just because we sound similar, just because we're both black, just because we're in this sort of post-Coltrane era and we're both influenced by Coltrane, right, um, doesn't mean that he influenced me. Yeah, as you put it when you were talking, it was uh, sonic resemblance should not be an indicator of influence. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it can be, but yeah. not necessarily, yeah. you know. So that's, I think, just, you know, again, to put it really bluntly, just because you both play out and you both happen to play reeds and woodwinds um, and you're both virtuosic doesn't mean that there's this relation of influence. Yeah. Um, another um, really interesting example I think that you gave, um, and I talked to Gabriel about this earlier on, it was a little uh, bit interesting that Mary Lou Williams seemed to pop up quite a lot over the few days. Yeah, it's um, kind not, of... Not as a focus of any, the main focus of people's papers primarily, but it just, she, she was there, you know, she was... I mean, I'm glad that, yeah. I, uh, you know, it's always good to have variety, so you don't want just the same person turning up over and over again, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it is nice to see Marilyn Williams getting a lot of attention. I love her music, um, and I think she's an underappreciated composer and pianist and improviser. Yeah. So yeah, the the example with her. Yeah, I think so. You, you mentioned uh, particularly her association with Ellington, which I thought was a really interesting example of gendered effects on influence. Yeah. That was like I thought that's something that I hadn't really thought about in that way in, in terms of representation, representing. Um, I guess your prestige and your place as a composer and right. how others could affect that. Yeah, so I would say that's the most, the more speculative part of the paper. You know, I, there's a lot to be teased out in there. I'm not an Ellington scholar, so I need to do some, some reading on that stuff. But, uh, um, but basically, you know, uh, I'm taking this from Tammy Knodel's amazing book called Soul on Soul. It's a really excellent book on Mary Lou Williams and her music. Um, so a lot of this is through, you know, Canodal is not making these claims regarding influence necessarily, but she, a lot of what I'm taking is from her, so I want to pay respect to that book. But, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's Williams, the two examples for Mary Lou Williams were in relation to the beboppers, it's particularly Thelonious Monk and Bud Powell, but then also Ellington. So the Ellington example that I gave was that, you know, there are two major things, uh, well, maybe two and a half things that come from that. One is that Williams wrote a whole bunch of scores for Ellington's band and toured with him uh, in 43 um, and wrote 15 charts or so for, for the, that they were playing on tour and then a, some of them are on Carnegie, uh, the Ellington's Carnegie Hall concert, right? Um, so the question is then, what kind of influence does somebody who's contributing pieces to the band, either as a composer or arranger or both, what, what is that relation of influence there? Because it does affect the sound of the band. If we had heard the band at that time, we would have heard Ellington, but we also would have heard Mary Lou Williams through the notes and the arrangements. So there's some relation of influence there, but because everyone's so focused on like Ellington the genius, and like he was great, don't get me wrong, those pieces are amazing, the band is amazing, because there's this like monolithic idea of what a genius is, we sort of, you know, lose this, this kind of, um, these other figures who are there. It's interesting. The writer uh, John Riggle has a has a book about uh, big band arranging um, and uh -huh. about the role of composers and arrangers. And Mary Lou Williams obviously features a lot in that because you know she was uh, you know a great musician and performer, but also a very you know uh, an excellent arranger and composer. Yeah. And so and so she gets kind of written into the history from that side. And yeah. That is kind of I guess trying to uh, reinsert the the 
the non-famous figures such as Ellington. Yeah. Kind of a way of kind of bringing them back into the, yeah. into the picture. Yeah, you know, Melba Liston is the other person that I think a lot about. You know, her work with Randy Weston and Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, again, like people who are contributing in this way but um, are often described in like these gendered terms, which, you know, the gendered terms being like they're sort of on the sidelines helping out you know helping out you know like not really influencing influencing to me has a has a, has a more explicit effect than something like helping out um, so I suppose that part of my paper was really trying to like get Williams and people like that like back really into the picture not just as merely like peripheral figures but like they're really in there you know um, and that yeah you know, we can talk about it if you want, but the, the example of Bebop, you know, Williams with the Bebop is, is sort of a similar one, you know, in many ways. Yeah. Um, but I, the, the particular example you also said about how, how Ellington didn't want to... Oh, uh, uh, yeah. That, that was interesting. Well, okay, so there's, that's the most provocative part of the paper, yeah. explicitly, because it's very, it's speculative. Yeah. It's, it's not, this is not, this part is not speculative. Um, Williams, after that good relationship with Ellington later in her career would send Ellington charts you know saying play these play these play these and you know there's a financial incentive for that of course the more people she can have playing her charts the more money she gets but of course that's what you need to do to survive um, and Ellington never adopted them and never wrote back there seemed to be this and she was kind of puzzled uh, you know as to why there was this radio silence from Ellington and so, yeah, in the paper, I suggest that um, the Bloom anxiety, influence as anxiety, could be an interesting way to think about this. Um, so, yeah, I, I say, uh, if we think of influence as anxiety, something to be escaped, Ellington's radio silence actually express, expresses an anxiety about the influence of Mary Lou Williams, i.e. maybe he doesn't want to take more on because he's afraid that her work will overshadow his own, you know. Um, like I said, I need to do more work on that, but that, that would be the Bloomian kind of take on that. It's a fascinating uh, idea, and I like the provocative nature of it as well. Yeah, sort of throwing that out there, yeah, yeah. throw some hand grenades in and yeah. see. But it also, uh, it separates from the Bloomian thing because the Bloomian thing is obviously focused on you know these kind of European, uh, kind of yeah. British uh, yeah. poetic tradition. Um, right. When this kind of adds a kind of gendered element to it, which doesn't really and, and erased, yeah, and yeah. erased element. And obviously, if you're gonna, if you, if one was to do a more extensive study of Mary Lou Williams, you would have to talk about intersections of race and gender as well. But yeah, that you know, Bloom and then Strauss's adoption of Bloom those questions never come into it because it's kind of taken for granted that you know who the, your past masters are and 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 I mean the whole apparatus is that you need to define yourself in terms of those past masters so the problem you get there is just the canon is never really questioned and in both cases you get this canon of dead white men you know basically um, and Taruskin has this very like vitriolic, unnecessarily vitriolic, but at at sometimes quite pointed, you know, sort of quite perceptive critiques of Bloom and Strauss. Um, and one of them, which I think is a good one, is that, you know, it's it's it just upholds this traditional canon of like Bach, Beethoven, Brahms. If you don't deal with those people, then you're not, you can't, you know, you according to that model, you can't deal with Clara Schumann 
because she's not an acknowledged master in, in scare quotes, you know. You have to deal with, you know, the masters. So talking about it in a jazz context where even though there has, you know, maybe in jazz studies for a while there was a kind of similarly rigid canon, canon more and more, you know, this canon is being contested and renegotiated and trying to think about how influence is a way of upsetting that canon is kind of part of the part of the idea. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I guess one of the last points um, you mentioned, and maybe right. this, this is a little bit more difficult to talk about kind of, a, you know, off the page because it's a, you know, you presented in a fairly sophisticated way, I think. Um, but it was your own theorization of this, you know, your own right. theory. So you, you talked about uh, territorialization and deterritorialization. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can, uh, if you could attempt to elaborate on that, that would be Yeah, helpful. you know, I, I, they're my, they're my um, what's the word, you know, they're the terms that I'm working with at the moment. And, and we'll, I'll have to, I have to do more analysis you know, textual analysis to figure out where the, these things lie. Um, the first thing I'll say is that, uh, yeah, so, okay, well, territorialization is the, basically the idea of, like, accepting an influence and the associations that come with it. Um, so this is Braxton accepting or, or citing Stockhausen as an influence, and there's this, like, you know, both Lewis and, um, like, George Lewis and then... Um, one of my favorite sort of philosophers, Karen Barad, physicist slash philosopher, Karen Barad says, you know, like, like uh, these are the discursive practices are boundary making practices. This is the idea. So to territorialize by, you know, by citing an influence, one territorializes a certain set of characteristics and, and aesthetic spaces that one wants to be associated with. The idea being that um, by associating with those things, you then hope to be described or thought about in similar terms. So this is this is Braxton's reading of Stockhausen or Braxton's reading of Desmond, you know, in, in, in some way, in some ways, he wants to be thought about in similar terms to those. Deterritorialization is a similar concept, but it's about rejection. So it's about rejecting an influence and distancing oneself from certain associations with those things. Now, a couple of um, a couple of footnotes to that. The first one is that those two things are not mutually exclusive because it's not. It's, some moves are, it can be territorializing while also deterritorializing other things. You know, any any acceptance of one influence might might also be a rejection of another influence. You know, um, um, and the second thing is that these ideas for me don't replace the sort of traditional like John Platoff ideas of what influences. I think it's still important to do like historical analysis to find documents that support this connection of influence. I think it's also important. I think it could also be useful to do musicological analysis like music anal music analysis where you find similarities or something in people's different playing. Although I have other related questions about those, but but that could also be useful. But I think the main the main idea with those concepts is to say that one in, in, dis in discourse, one will explicitly claim or reject those influences and that that affects the way your, one's music is received and thought about. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea at the moment. Yeah. That's great. I mean, uh, would you say at this point, uh, you know, I know it's still a work in progress, but yeah. uh, would you say that there's like, there's a concluding kind of idea or kind of 
is there, is there a conclusion yet or are you still in the kind of research stage where you've got an end point? Is there a conclusion? Um, well, I, I'm still researching. I need more examples. And, you know, <clears throat> every claim or rejection of influence you know, in a, in a, in a, like published, not even published, like in a sort of either published or public forum or something like that is, is, is usually done in a fairly purposeful way. And all I'm suggesting is that we, we need to think about what those purposes might be. Um, and that those purposes operate in like highly contested frames regarding race and gender and you know nationhood and sexuality and lots of things you know um, um, and that I'm just suggesting that we could think about how those things operate um, in in relation to or alongside our maybe more traditional notions of what influence is um, maybe the last thought is I think as a, as, as so often is the case, it's really important for us all to guard against essentialist ideas um, and influence is, is, is like this too. And at the end of my paper, Corey Mwamba, uh, well, sorry, in his paper, he suggested, he relayed this story of Cecil Taylor in a, on a panel um, and somebody asking him if he was influenced by Stravinsky and, and Cecil Taylor like vehemently rejecting you know, Stravinsky. So to me, there's a very interesting contrast between Cecil Taylor rejecting Stravinsky, rejecting West, the Western art music, modernist Western art music, and saying, no, I come from the jazz tradition, you know, and Anthony Braxton of a similar era and ilk in some ways saying, I am heavily influenced by Karl-Heinz Stockhausen and John Cage. They have almost opposite territorializing and deterritorializing moves in relation to the Western art music tradition, despite what might be their similarities in the jazz canon. So I just think it's, it's very important to not, to avoid conflating um, things like genre, era, race, you know, all these sorts of things, and thinking that, you know, guarding against sort of facile claims where you say like, well, free jazz was in opposition to Western art music. No, it's not. Or free jazz, you know, like free, free jazz embraced ideas from Western art music. No, neither of those things are true. Like you need to look at the people and the way they talk about themselves and the way they accept or reject their, their influences. So yeah, sort of guarding against that essentialist thing, which always rears its ugly head, you know, of course. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, it's excellent. I, I really look forward to reading the, you know, the finished piece. Um, Thank you. Um, and maybe, maybe one last thing, actually, I guess, as you know, we've had like three days of this conference. Yeah. We had loads of really interesting papers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, all under the thematic banner of like documenting jazz. Yeah. Um, any kind of like final thoughts about like the conference and the, and the things that kind of popped up? Um, I mean, like for me, it's definitely, there have been a lot of parallels with my own work and I think I can kind of go away and kind of absorb some of the ideas and the concepts people have, you know, kind of presented. Uh, yeah. And there are a lot of takeaways for me. I'm, I'm wondering, if, are there any takeaways from you or any kind of last thoughts maybe? Well, the takeaways, uh, I don't, I, I very much appreciate the kind of poly, uh, what is it, sort of the variety of, um, um, lines of questioning 
that the topic documenting jazz generates, you know. So, to, as they were saying in the concluding comments, it's not quite obvious what that means. Or maybe some people thought it was obvious and then it turns out it wasn't as obvious as they thought or something. Yeah, which is evident by the diversity of approaches that exactly. people have taken to this And I theme. think for me, it's, I find myself coming back to this a lot in lots of different areas, but that, um, Pluralism of approaches is maybe one of the most interesting parts of, of, a, of a conference like this, I think, is that it's, it's not a conference based around a particular, say, repertoire or analytical approach or something like that. It's just, it's based around this sort of pretty general concept which generates this incredible variety. So the takeaway for me has really been thinking about um, how my, the, you know, my take on that and this paper that I gave rubs up against, bumps up against, or aligns with, or like aligns with and then diverges from other work. Like your, your paper is a perfect example actually, where it's like, we're talking about very different music, very different contexts, um, and we're asking pretty different questions, right? But we both, but your paper, for me, had this very interesting, like, well, to, to mischaracterize your paper, you know, based on what I'm interested in please, for a second, you know, it's like what happens when influence is inserted into digital networks. You know, um, it's a it's a very different kind of thing that happens. Um, and thinking about how influence is demonstrated, like you said, like you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like you know, a lot of the time people are demonstrating an influence of Django. And he's nowhere to be seen, you know. They're, they're, it's like repertoire that he might have recorded or, or sort of musical techniques or styles or things like that which evoke Django. But they're not playing Django licks necessarily. They're not even necessarily playing his music. Um, and so, and then it gets circulated in this kind of really interesting way where you're recording people at festivals or like sitting down in a lounge room and, you know, very different kind of way of thinking about influence. So. So for me, there's like all these unexpected, pleasantly unexpected resonances, you know, with at least the questions that I was thinking about and coming in here. So I, I suppose that's my big takeaway. Uh, always great to be in Dublin. Um, always great to be at Jazz Studies conferences. You know, I always enjoy that as well. Great, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jeremiah, appreciate it. Okay. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've enjoyed making it. I'd like to thank both Gabriel Solis and Mark Hannaford for taking the time to speak to me about their research and being willing participants in traveling into the unknowns of a first podcast episode with me. You can find out more about Gabriel at his staff page on the University of Illinois website. And if you're interested in Mark's research or his music, which you should definitely check out, you should go to his website at www.markhannaford.com. All of the music you've heard in this episode comes from Dublin's Redivider. I'd like to thank Matt Jacobson for his permission to use their music here. If you'd like to hear more about Redivider, you can visit Matt's website, www.matthewjacobsonmusic.com, or you can visit their label's website and buy their music at Diatribe Records at www.diatribe.ie. Finally, I'd like to thank Damien Evans and all involved in the organization of the Documenting Jazz Conference. I hope this podcast serves as a small document of some of the ideas presented at the first installment of the conference. The next episode will be out shortly, so do please subscribe to the podcast so you can catch that on its release. Episode 2 will continue the discussion started at Documenting Jazz, and the episode will feature conversations with Crin Gabbard, Alicia Ward, and Alan Munchar. 
as this has been the first episode i'd really welcome any feedback so do please get in touch if you have any thoughts about the podcast and i guess that is it bye for now